Hi, this is George Thorgood. Hey, this is Pat Travers. Hey, this is Steve Lukather of Toto. Hi, y'all. This is Charlie Daniels, and you're listening to Jimmy Warren. Hey, everybody. Jimmy Warren here with Guitar Talk. Welcome. Hey, you are in for a super, super treat tonight. The one thing you're going to want to do is make sure you have a cool beverage and then strap yourself in. That's right, because tonight we have one of the baddest guitar players there is. That's Lance Lopez. That's right. I'm going to call him the Texas bad man, you know, even though he's not in Texas no more. <laughs> Lance is, man, this guy is so amazing. Such a great player. He's played with everybody, too. I mean, he hangs out with all the greats, Billy Gibbons, Joe Bonamassa, Robin Ford, great drummers like Kenny Arnoff. Oh, my God. This guy's connected, 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 and he is just one hell of a guitar player. And so what we're going to do tonight is is that we're going to have a conversation with Lance. We're going to talk about his gear. We're going to talk about his career. We're going to talk more about gear, and then we're going to talk about some gear. And then we're going to have a conversation about some guitars, and it's just, it's going to be amazing. And then you're going to want to go to your favorite place to, to get music if you don't have all his stuff, if you're not following him on all the streaming services, if you're not doing the things that you need to do in order to make sure Lance Lopez's music is a part of your life, well, you're going to have to hop to it because you need to have that music in your catalog, in your back pocket. You need to be able to talk about the one and only Lance Lopez. So I'm going to stop jabbering. And we are just going to get to it. Here is my conversation with the one and only Lance Lopez. I got to ask what your story is. Well, Jimmy, that's a great question. Um, You know, the story all began uh, as far back as I can remember as a toddler. Um, You know, my my father and Elvis Presley were really close friends. And Elvis had actually passed away about um, a month, month and a half before I was born. And, um, so they were in the army together and they knew each other before that from Louisiana Hayride and just had a strong connection. And, uh, the first footage I remember seeing of Elvis was on an old Betamax tape and it was a 68 comeback special. And as I'm watching it on TV, I'm looking at a framed picture next to the TV of my dad and the same guy together. So I never really associated the fact that he was who he was. I just knew that he was like part of our fam, like our fam, you know, like my dad's friend. And, uh, and they were sitting around in this circle, like him and Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana was like the drummer who was also from our hometown. Um, as was his other lead guitar player later on, James Burton. Um, and so it was just kind of looking at the TV set and looking at the frame picture next to it of, of my dad and Elvis. And so I just remember saying I, I wanted that it just immediately struck that nerve, that spiritual place where I just connected immediately to that, um, to the guitar and wanted to play guitar immediately. And sitting there with my father as a, as a toddler, he was all, you know, in all the way immediately. And uh, he had taken, so a couple years had gone by, and I guess about five years old, I picked up the guitar and began to kind of, um, you know, experimented with trying to play it. But by about the age of eight years old, I, my dad, I finally got very serious. So it, it took a few years. The want to was always there, but by the age of eight, I was full on in and had a guitar and, and, uh, 
So my dad eventually got me one, and he gave me an acoustic guitar for Christmas, and he also gave me a vinyl copy of the Great 28 double album by Chuck Berry, and it was 20, I think it was 28 songs, and he said, you have to learn all these songs, and when you learn these songs, I'll buy you an electric guitar. <laughs> so that's how that kind of so began with the gospel of Chuck Berry, and I had to learn everything note for note, and he would stand there with the needle on the vinyl, and nope, wrong lick, nope, wrong lick. <laughs> So, and I had no, I had no other, I had no example. I mean, I had to figure it out on my own how these sounds were happening, how these chords were happening, how all these, these runs were happening. And, and little did I know was at the time I was already playing blues because so much of what Chuck Berry's playing was based on was the blues. Mm-hmm. So it was Elmore James, T-Bone Walker, all these different styles that Chuck Berry had taken and forged into rock and roll um, was the very beginnings of where, where I began too. So it naturally made my guitar playing blues, like in, in a blues style, very bluesy. And growing up in, as a kid in the 1980s, that was not a very cool thing because it was the day of Randy Rhodes, uh, Eddie Van Halen, yeah. all these shredders. And so, um, you know, I, I just very, I played a very minor pentatonic blues based style at a time when, um, you know, that was, you know, all the kids that were my age that did play guitar. It was, you know, it was, it was about the 80s rock music. So, um, which then eventually it circled back around for me in the blues. So that's really, that was the beginnings of how I started to play guitar in the very, very beginning. Yeah. I, I find it funny, you know, uh, one of the common stories that I hear from different people that I talk to. As a matter of fact, I was just talking to, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, do you know who Mark Goldenberg is? I don't know if I know Mark. Uh, Mark, Mark Goldenberg uh, played guitar for, you know, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, Willie Nelson. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, fantastic player. But he was just telling me, and I've heard this from a lot of other people, of how their their parents would kind of dangle the electric guitar. You learn to do this, and then I'll get you an electric guitar. The way All my right. dad did with your album, you know what I mean? He, his uh-huh. dad made him take classical lessons for two years. You do that for two years, and then you can have – I think it's kind of funny. You know, my parents did the same thing to me. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, you know, were you, were you uh, formally trained at all when you were young, or was everything, you know, by ear, you know, with the well, album? Everything was completely by ear. Yeah. I mean, it was completely by ear, and I went um, – the good news was, is in the 1980s, as, as a kid, when I started to play guitar, there was um, there were concerts every weekend in the town we lived in, Louisiana and Shreveport. So we had a we had a coliseum there, and every weekend was a was a major rock band, and they were all general admission shows. And I was a little kid, so that's what everybody did in town. You all went, to the, all the kids went to the concert. And so one week it would be ACDC, one the next weekend it would be Van Halen, the next weekend it would be Aerosmith or whoever, you know, whatever big giant rock band would come into town. And so it was a general admission show. So I could get up to the very front rail and I would get on the, the very front and watch all those guitar players in those bands and, uh, and then go home and immediately try to duplicate what I had saw that night. So, um, and it was funny because I was telling somebody this the other the last weekend that I remember going to my mom and asking her for $13 and 15 $13.50 to get a concert ticket to go see Kiss. <laughs> and, and she, my mother was like, it was, I, I should have been asking for like a million dollars. I mean, to ask for almost 14 bucks, it was, you know, a little over $13. Yeah. So, you know, I remember paying, 
in, I think, $15 to see the very first performance that Sammy Hagar ever did with Van Halen. I mean, we were there. Caroline Shepard was there as well. It was a very powerful show. And so, you know, and I just, those times, I just remember thinking back of when we were kids and those, the, the cost of those concerts. But that's truly how I would, I would watch those guitar players and go home and mimic what they did. You know, and I would just, just zero in on the guitar player and just watch him like a hawk and then go home and try to duplicate what I'd seen him do. So that was a lot of what, what I would do. And, uh, and then, yeah, everything else was by ear or watching other guitar players, but no formal lessons. My parents never paid for lessons. It was very much teachers, you know, teach yourself how to do this. How bad do you want it? Especially with my dad, like you said, dangling that electric when I would get as, as I would progress and get better, my dad would get me a better guitar or a better amp or, you know, he would, it, that, that I had to earn kind of the, the better guitars and amps by, you know, um, my progress on the guitar, how hard I worked on, you know, working on my craft. Right. So, so we, can you say that like right now, you know, now you're, you know, many years down the road from that, ha- have you taken any formal lessons since then? Or are you Absolutely. Still- yeah. Absolutely. And that, you know, when I, uh, when I worked with supersonic blues machine, we had a, we had a, a conglomerate of guitar players like Robin Ford and, and, um, and other players, Steve Lukather. And it would be funny because we would go to Norway or Amsterdam or Paris. We would be somewhere, you know, getting ready to do a festival and we'd all be checking in at the hotel. And that's when I would ask him, Hey man, can I get a lesson? And I remember Robin Ford would look at me and go, what'd you just say? And I said, can I have a guitar lesson? And he'd be like, are you serious right now? And I'd be like, yeah, can we sit down right here and get a coffee and show me some licks? Yeah. And, you know, and I, I always, and that was because I had the, and I also had the opportunity of having great mentors like Billy Gibbons, like Johnny Winter, all those guys that just, it was continuous being around them. And I had those kind of guys, but being around great guitar players, I, um, and especially once I started to lose people, you know, once people started to pass away, mm-hmm. um, it, that's when it really became a thing for me to ask for a lesson. You know, instead of just being around them and watching them play and trying to absorb it, I would then ask them to them to impart, you know, something that they, you know, that I could learn and utilize and not just mimic, but to incorporate into my style of playing and incorporate into my thing. And or I would show them this is what I'm doing. What do you think I could do to improve this? And uh, and having that knowledge, which also, you know, takes humility to be able to do that, you know, right? Uh, to sit down and say, hey, I, I would like to improve. Uh, my playing yeah and uh you well you're getting lessons in in those instances from from the best oh my god you know lucather and ford i mean those are those are great guys and how do they react to that you know i mean how does somebody i've never asked a guy like that you know for for lessons and, and i know some people like them of course but I would never, I never thought to just say, Hey, you know, you know, this is what I'm doing. What do you think? How do they respond? I mean, it was, it would be great. I mean, it was, but it was always like, um, it, it, it always took some serious prompting and some serious pulling and prodding <laughs> to make happen because they wouldn't think I was serious. Yeah. You know, and I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm very serious. I want to do this. And then, Oh, Lance, you're great, man. Like, what are you talking about? And I'd be like, no, I, I really want a guitar lit. Like I want to incorporate um, something into it, um, you know, I always would do that. And they would just react in a way of, 
eventually we would sit down and, 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 and talk about, you know, um, styles and licks and kind of get into it. You know, once it was, once they thought I was serious, a lot of times they would think I was joking, especially Luke at there. Cause you know, he's just, yeah. he's, he's just such a comical and funny character. I mean, it's hard to be in a bad mood around Luke, you know? Yeah. And so he would always just make it into just, by the time it was finished, we were just rolling on the floor hysterical, you know? Yeah. But, um, but you know, yeah. And, and, um, so yeah, I mean, it was always, the reactions were always great, you know, and also guys in Texas like David Grissom was -hmm. another player that I always, you know, that would, would really get around Alan Haynes, all these guys, Van Wilkes, all those great players in Austin, you know, I would definitely always get around and, and just play together and, and it was just very matter of fact, just very, you know, very brief, no, like sitting down, like, let's get formal, but you know, like a very brief. Yeah something to incorporate. And I think that just, it helps to share those ideas and it also helps to say, Hey, can you, can you show me something that would improve my playing? Yeah. I I think it's, I think it's always a wise thing to surround yourself with people that are, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, more knowledgeable in other areas than you are, or maybe a better player than you are, you know, at certain things and that surround yourself with great players, you know, is probably a, a good motto in order to keep, you know, sharp. Absolutely. And I've just, I've been so fortunate to, that not, you know, that not only all my favorite guitar players and heroes, you know, I'm, I've just been, been able to, you know, they've been able to be my friend, you know, become friends with them and have them as a friend, you know, yeah. have the friendship that I've had with all my heroes. I mean, that's just, I'm so very fortunate for that. Yeah. So how did, you know, as a player, how did you go from picking up the guitar in the very beginning, you know, to working with Johnny Taylor at 17? Um, well, um, going to, from playing the guitar in the very beginning to going to playing with Johnny Taylor, I just, you know, I began to get into bands. I mean, you know, when I moved to New Orleans with my dad, um, from Texas, I began to, um, once I got into the, um, um, you know, down there and my dad saw how I progressed because I'd had bands when I lived in, in Texas. We'd had bands and played little dances and, you know, little house parties and, you know, some little rock, rock and roll club gigs and stuff. But when I got down, when I moved back to New Orleans with my dad, he had saw how far I progressed and he was like, we got to start going out and doing this for real. And so he began to take me to all the clubs in the French Quarter. There was also another district in Metairie, Louisiana called Fat City, which was a mini uh, it was a mini French quarter, um, and, uh, all around New Orleans and Treme, all these different places, you know, that we would go and, and there would be club, you know, bands and, and my dad would ask me to sit in, ask if I could sit in with them, you know, and, uh, and then I got, I would get hired. So, um, I cut my teeth basically in New Orleans, uh, at the age of 14 playing professionally, um, and we would play all night. I mean, you know, bars and, 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 uh, nightclubs never close in New Orleans. They're open 24 seven. So I would get home from school and I would play, I would immediately go to a happy hour gig from five to eight. So we would play the first gig at night. And then the second gig would be the main show, which would then be from nine to midnight. And then we would go to the after hour gig which would be usually around 12.30 to 1 a.m. until about, um, you know, somewhere around between 3 and 5 a.m. 
So then I would get home from, get home, take a two hour nap and then go back to school. So it was, uh, it was, and then, you know, when I was 14, 15 years old, you know, I could do that. No problem. You know, I would go for days on end like that and, um, work pretty regularly. So I would do, I would do three gigs in a night at three different clubs or three different parts. Sometimes we would do three to four to five gigs in a day. You know, if it, you know, if we play all afternoon and, go to all these different spots. So it was just, it was continuous playing guitar and all different style blues, cover, cover band music, you know, um, straight up New Orleans funk, Zydeco, R&B. You know, it was every kind of style you could imagine if you think of, you know, New Orleans and nightclubs and, you know, the French Quarter. I mean, that was basically, I had to cover so much ground. I had to have equipment that was versatile. I had to have a guitar that was versatile that would allow me to get many different sounds. And that's what I, you know, that's when I began doing that. I began to, to figure out how to sound like different guitar tones and different um, songs um, at the same, you know, in one, in one night, in one day, you know, with three or four different bands and four or five different venues. So it was, it, it really kept me on my toes back then as a kid beginning to, uh, play in those clubs in, in New Orleans. And then we, you know, later we, we moved around a lot. We moved to Florida and I began to have my own band and, you know, a lot of covers and, you know, a lot of little cover bands, just like the typical story. And by the time we moved back to Texas, um, Lucky Peterson, oddly enough, was playing in a club in South Dallas. It was a primarily all African American neighborhood in a very um, well-known club called Booker's Arandis, which, which is where, like, B.B. King or Muddy Waters or any of those guys were in town, that's where they hung out when they came to town. And so I, I was privileged enough to be invited by one of Lucky's band members to come down there and sit in. And I guess I was maybe – I had just maybe turned 17. So I was 16, 17 years old. And, um, and I'd gone down there, you know, this little kid, and uh Lucky pulled me on stage to sit in with the band. And um and so uh, another another pr- producer saw me at that jam session sit in with Lucky and immediately stepped down from the stage and a guy grabbed me and said, "Can you be in Atlanta in 2 days?" And I was like, you know, I don't I don't know, let me ask my dad. <laughs> 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 I have to go ask my dad, you know. <laughs> I was like that kind of thing. And so, you know, and, and, and I had to learn 32 songs on a bus ride from Dallas to Atlanta. Wow. Uh, you know, and, uh, and there was no, you know, smart, I mean, I had a Walkman and two cassettes and, uh, and, you know, and my Strat on the bus, you know, um, learning 32 songs that we had to play for the show in 11 hour bus ride. So, um, that, that was the beginning and, and on that journey, I mean, that's when I began to meet Bobby, I met, you know, met and played with Bobby Blue Bland, Johnny Guitar Watson, Little Milton, um, Al Green. I mean, all these major fixtures that I had no clue who they even were. Like I didn't even know who they were, but like, you know, when I would be backstage at these big festivals and stuff or shows we would play and then you know, other, other, you know, my heroes would walk in the door paying tribute to him. I'd be like, wow, you know, I didn't realize who this guy was. So, you know, it was, it was quite a, um, quite an experience. And, um, 
and that I just went from one kind of blues singer to another after that, you know, playing on the on that circuit and being able to meet, you know, great, um, great artists like that and really began to talk how to be a, like a blues and soulful singer, which was rooted in gospel music, you know, black gospel music, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, 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 and just started that journey and eventually wound up with Lucky uh, in the mid nineties, just because he was doing so well in Europe when he was signed to Polygram and Verve at that time. Um, Lucky had had really sought sought after me, and the guitar player that was working with him got a. I think he went to play. The guitar player that was playing with Lucky, I think, went to play with Sheila E. Um, and he left to join her band, and she. I guess she was out working with Prince, and so that's and Lucky. It, that was the opportunity that Lucky then came and and got me. So in between doing you know those sideman gigs, when I would come home, I would still play with my own band. You know, I would have a power trio and do more of the heavier blues rock, you know, stuff. But on the road, I was primarily playing R and B and soul music and, and, uh, and that. So, um, and then eventually once I, I went out with, um, then I, then I joined Lucky's band. Yeah. Now you were his band leader for, for a period, weren't you? I was. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I ended and it was really, it was very odd that way being Lucky's band leader because, you know, you had all these guys that had played with B.B. King, yeah. Albert King, you know, all these big, right. and you know, here I was, this 20-year-old kid trying to tell this guy that, you know, played drums with Albert King, you know, <laughs> like I was the, the, the musical director for, you know, so it was, it was, uh, it, it was interesting, you know, it was an interesting way to pay my, pay, pay dues, but, you know, to be in, in, uh, and a musical director was such a powerful unit, um, was, was incredible. And, uh, you know, the horn section was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it was really great. It was just like a big, powerful, serious funk band. And, um, uh, so, you know, it was really, really, really good, man. We, um, you know, it, it just was a great situation where I was able to, um, you know, really hone my skills and then also, you know, take charge of a band and, and, and lead a band, um, you know, on the road, you know, worldwide. Yeah. Hey, I, I got to ask, was there a guy, uh, a drummer that played with Lucky at that time when you were with him that went by the name of Zim? No. No? Okay. I just, yeah, knew, I, I just knew a drummer here from Chicago who had went to Berkeley that, it played with Lucky for a period of time, and uh, you know it's hard to run in anybody that really knew this cat. You know, Mm-mm. no, I, I never worked with a drummer by that name. Yeah, he was really good though. <laughs> but anyway, Lucky, Lucky was so good. I mean, it was it was sad, you know, to hear of his passing. You know, here just recently. You know. Yeah, I'm I'm still grieving pretty hard. I mean, it yeah. was. The worst part about it was he had, and it was a week ago today, he called me and I missed his call. Oh. So I just, it really was, it was tough. You know, he, he had just called me and I was trying to get back in touch with him. And, uh, it was oddly enough because it was the anniversary of little Richard's passing. And I, and I had shared a story, um, about our experience with little Richard. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's what prompted him to call me. And he, he had saw the post and want, you know, and wanted to talk to me. And then a little bit, I, you know, I never yeah. would have expected that a couple of days later he'd be gone, you know? And, uh, 
So, yeah, it, it's a huge loss. It's a tragic loss. It, it was, it, you know, Lucky was family to me. He, uh, I wouldn't have the career that I had overseas in Europe without him. Um, I would never have been given an opportunity to learn how to lead a band. Like you said, like, you know, being that musical director, mm. I never would have had that knowledge without him. Um, he, he introduced me to a mass audience and uh, featured me as his, as his guitar player. And I, I owe a great deal to Lucky Peterson. I mean, I would not have the career I have internationally without him. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, you know, I, I got to talk about your, your guitars for a while. In okay. That, uh, you know, I know you got a variety of different guitars that you play. You know, we all have, you know, different things for different songs and stuff. But right. what, are, what are your prime? What's your number one? What's your number one go to all the time? Well, the number one is uh, what we call the Barton Creek Burst. Um, and we named it the Barton Creek Burst for Barton Creek in Austin. Okay. Um, it basically was built by the, the Gibson Custom Shop. It's a, it's a R9 Les Paul. And um, it it's a 59 reissue, so basically. And it was comprised of specs from a couple of different um, very – uh, classic 59s. Um, part of it has specs from Jimmy Page's guitar. Uh, it has specs from Billy Gibbons' guitar. Um, and I believe one of Joe Walsh's. And so they basically took some schematics and some specs that they had measurements from the other guitars and just kind of, you know, morphed them all into one. And, um, so they, um, they gave me a guitar and the fun and the story behind the Barton Creek burst. It's funny because, um, I had a West coast tour booked in uh, California and we had two nights at the, at the famous baked potato, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and one of those nights had sold out already. And the other, the other night was getting close to selling out. And then we had, you know, gigs all the way up to San Francisco and so I got a call from my Gibson A&R guy at the time, and he said, Lance, um, I, we need you to come play this um, this show for South by Southwest at the showroom in Austin. And I said, oh, man, I need to, you know, and, and South by Southwest was always such a big, huge pilgrimage and so crowded. I always would, you know, if I didn't have to be there, I always would be playing somewhere else other than, you know, being yeah. in Austin around the whole big giant thing, you know? So he called me and he said, you know, um, we need you to do this, um, this event for the custom shop. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we would like for you to, to play this. I think they originally had Leroy Parnell scheduled and he canceled. So, um, so I told him, I, I go, man, I've got a West coast tour and they, he's please do what you can. I mean, this is for Gibson custom shop. They really want you to do this. This is a big, huge deal. I said, let me see what I can do. So I made calls. We made calls. We, we moved some show dates around. We rescheduled. We, we pushed the tour off. We, we kind of rescheduled everything. And, and uh, Justin at the Baked Potato was none too happy because we had already sold out one show. And I remember he was, he had, you know, he had a real difficult time with it, but it was like, I was like, man, I need to do this for the custom shop. And so, uh, we got about a week away from it. So we rescheduled everything, canceled the whole tour, rescheduled it. And about a week out, I got a call from, from my A&R guy, Gibson. And he was like, Lance, we've got good news and bad news. 
which do you want first? And I was like, well, I want the bad news. And he was like, well, the show at South by Southwest is canceled. (laughs) And I was like, I just moved this whole tour. And so I said, well, man, uh, and before I could say anything, he's like, but we're still going to pay you and everything's going to be great. So have a great day. Click. (laughs) 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 And I just sat there on the phone stunned. So man, I, um, so I sat there that weekend when I was supposed to be on tour in the West coast. And then I was supposed to be in Austin sitting at home, you know, not doing anything, waiting on a check in the mail. And uh, I, I wrote an email and I wrote an email to everybody at Gibson. And I had included all the custom shop, all the A&R people. And I wrote this giant email and I said, you know, I'm not pissed off, but I'm pissed off. <laughs> yeah. email. And, uh, and I said, you know, for this happening, I've, you know, I really would like for something to ha- you know, different to happen, and you guys to include me on some other stuff. And I hit send, and the minute I hit send, I went, "Oh my God, what did I just do?" <laughs> yeah. Kind of a thing. Yeah. And, with, and then within 15 minutes, my phone was ringing, and it was the guys at Gibson. And I went, "Oh!" And I dreadfully answered the call, like, "Hello, waiting, ready to apologize." And and I got the call. And it was like Mark Lansing. They were like, you know, Lance, Mark, and Gibson. And I went, man, he goes, we got your email. Everybody got your email. And I went, and they were like, what do you want? What do you want? What, just whatever you want. We're still going to pay you, but what do you want? Yeah. And anything, you want us to build you a signature guitar. What do you want? And I go, I want the best 59 West Paul guys can make. And I mean, at first I was like, oh man, come on, you don't have to do that. And they were like, no, I, I'm instructed to not hang up the phone. So I give you what you want. Wow. And so they built me this guitar and they took, like I said, they took specs from Jimmy Pages, from Billy Gibbons, and they built the Barter Creek Burst. So they built it in a couple of weeks. They put all these specs together. They built it at the custom shop. And then they um, they shipped it to Austin for me to get. And when the guys at the, at the Gibson showroom in Austin got it, I mean, they were, they were pretty speechless. Uh, they called me and we immediately, I had to be at a movie premiere. In Austin, at, at the South by Southwest Film Festival, anyway, on a documentary I was in, a blues documentary. And so I had to be down there anyway. So I just said, I, when I come down for this movie premiere, I will pick up the uh, the guitar. And when we got there, I immediately, when he opened the case, I went, oh, my God. I mean, it was breathtaking. It was incredible. And so we stayed, um, my wife and I at the time, we stayed at the... Um, um, uh, the Barton Creek Resort, which is an Omni Resort out in here, Bee Caves, and it's this very bougie, you know, spas and the whole thing. And she wanted to go do all this stuff, and I just sat up all night on the couch in the suite playing that Les Paul. And I sent a picture to Gibbons, so I took, I set up a picture, and the sun rose, and I put it in a chair, and I took a picture, and I sent it to Billy. And, and Billy was like, where are you? And I said, well, I'm at Barton Creek at BKs in Austin. That's the Barton Creek first. So that's how we ended up naming it because it was, that's the first place I went when I got it was at Barton Creek in Austin. So it, it's what it became. Wow. That's really cool that Gibson accommodated you like that though. Yeah, they did, man. Yeah, that was good. I know you play a lot. I see, you know, I've seen, you know, photos, you, you know, images you know, with you, with, with a lot of their gear and that. So, uh, it's probably been a good relationship over the years. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've kind of bounced around to some different companies early on, but yeah, no, I, I, um, 
Gibson has definitely taken good care of me. You know, I've, I've, I've had just such a great relationship with him. I've played their guitars for, you know, over the last, I've been, you know, the last decade. Um, you know, I've, 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 I've really had a great relationship with him and, and, um, you know, even more so now than ever. So it's, um, yeah, it's been really great. But the, yeah, that my 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 '59 reissue burst is 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 the main guitar. It's the one that uh, you know, it's my desert island guitar. Yeah. What about what about amps? I mean, what's your what's your go to? <laughs> well, I, uh, I I I designed an amplifier with uh, Reinhold Bogner about six or seven years ago, called the Helios 100, and. Um, we, uh, it was built around a 6869, um, Super Lead 100 platform. And I wanted an amp that, my main amp, the main one I've had, the, the last of my vintage collection is I have a 1970 Super Bass 100. That's, that's the main, the mainstay. I've got a Marshall Super Bass that was owned by Roger Glover of Deep Purple. Um, it, well, it was actually just in the Deep Purple Road Rig era from um the early 70s mm-hmm. it's a 1970 and so roger was playing bass through it on tour with deep purple from about 1970 until about 1972 i'm told and it was part of their american touring rig and it's got the polarity switch that's how you knew it was for america and um so he used it on stage with deep purple it it, it wound up in the hands of a of a of a collector um, in Texas that was bought by, um, Jimmy Wallace, the guitar, you know, the guitar dealer down there. And, um, and then Doyle Bramhall and uh, Doyle Bramhall is, you know, second. We're, we're kind of both eyeing it and I ended up getting it. So that is my mainstay amp. That's the last of the vintage collection of Marshall that I have. Um, it's, um, I'm recording with it right now. I've been recording the, the whole new album with it. Um, and it's great. And I usually use a Weber Mass 200 with it, an attenuator, uh, you know, because it's just, you know, it's so loud, um, which makes it usable, um, you know, in, in, at shows. But to go back to the Helios 100, the Helios 100 was designed by, by Reinhold Wagner, um, because I wanted an amp that would have a Super Lead 100 and then also the capability to also have a JTM 45 in one amp with the flip of a switch. And so that's what the Helios does. And then he also put mods in it that he had done um, with every other um, Marshall, you know, like the mods he did for Ed Van Halen, the mods he had done for all the other, like Jerry Cantrell, all these like rock mods he'd done, which is really cool um, because I know guys were sending him their vintage Marshalls and wanted them to mod them like, like they did Van Halen's amp, but he, you know, Reinhold didn't want to do that because he's selling his own amplifier. You know, he had kind of gotten out of the Marshall modding business. So um, when he when he wanted to design this amp, he reached out to me, and that's how our relationship began because he knew I was a vintage Marshall guy. Um, and he really went down to the workhorse guys that used the vintage Marshalls. There was me. There was another guitar player by the name of Doug Rappaport, who's another dear friend of mine who I actually brought him into the supersonic blues machine thing, who had been playing guitar with Edgar Winter. Uh, and then there was also Hoppe Moriera, you know, who was Pink's, um, Pink. He played with Pink and uh, played with Christina Aguilera. And both of those guys were two of my best friends in LA. And they, you know, Reinhold wanted working class guys that either, you know, that used vintage marshals on the road as opposed to, you know, maybe more 
uh, well-known, you know, superstar guitar players that, you know, really didn't, you know, their techs were mainly using their amps, you know, right. the techs mainly set it up. They wanted guys that were using, you know, these kind of Marshall amps on the road, day-to-day kind of working class guys. And so we kind of helped shape that amp and, and, and um, you know, you know, help with the design of it. And so that's what I primarily use live now because it is controllable. Um, you know, it's got a JTM 45 setting of 30 watts. However, I'm using the four EL3, uh, the, the EL34 power tubes, which kind of overpowers it and gives it this whole other uh, rich harmonic um, dimension because it's like over tubed at 30 watts. So you get way more harmonics, way more kind of really good saturation. Um, you know, and then at a hundred watts, it's a good 100 watts. It's not that piercing, you know, too loud hundred watts. It's that very all encompassing, very, um, round, full, you know, subtle, good hundred watts. That's, um, you know, like the old 68, 69 marshals always had, you know, um, so, Reinhold's one of my dearest friends. I mean, I, I just, you know, I know Bogner is more associated with heavy metal and modern rock music, but he wanted to get more into the traditional purist, um, you know, Marshall, um, vintage Marshall guys. And so I was very fortunate to be selected by Reinhold to design that amp with him. And then we've been, you know, he's been one of my dearest friends ever since. So, uh, uh, you know, are you a guy that, um, you know, overdoes it on pedals? Do you got a pedal board the size of a Volkswagen? Are you, uh, you know, you compact? I mean, what are you going, are you just plugging in? Uh, well, there's just different things, you know. I, um, I have, my pedal board is not as big. You know, when I played, when I played Stratocasters, I felt like I needed more pedals with a Strat, you know, um, to do different things. Um you know, playing humbuckers like I have for the last 10 to 15 years, um, it's been, you know, a mode of sometimes I'll plug straight in, especially with, the, with you know, with my Les Paul, I could plug straight into a really good amp and that's it. Um, and, uh, you know, but my pedal board is very simple. I mean, it's a tuner. I'm using a, 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 one of Mike Fuller's wah-wah pedals, the Clyde Standard. I've got an old Clyde Standard I bought at Rudy's Music in New York City. 20 years ago and that pedal has withstood everything i mean i've used that wah-wah pedal i put it on i guess i bought it in new york around 2000 99 you know and it's never been repaired never had a problem i mean i just really believe in mike fuller's you know products i mean full tone yeah. they make some, it's some of the best stuff and it's just it's so durable yeah. um so that's the wah I use, and that was one of the, the, the key reasons why I used that wah-wah pedal was because of the durability. I mean, it has surely been durable. It's, you know, I've had it on the board off and on for 20 years. Um, I've got a, a really cool overdrive pedal that's made by my good friend up in um, at, at Cream Tone, which is, a, I don't know if you're familiar with Cream Tone or not, in South Carolina, they do a lot of the, he does a lot of the uh, Les Paul modding, and he makes a lot of parts but he's got a um he's got a really cool overdrive pedal that's on the board now um that we're using um and uh, i think it's called the scream tone it's like a little orange creamsicle looking pedal and it's really cool it's kind of the cross between a uh mxr distortion plus and a tube screamer yeah. so it's kind of in that in that in that wheelhouse but much more 
much more smooth and and round. And then I've got a um, I've got a I've got a unique pedal called a uh, that was built by Mojo Pedals, which was a company. It's it's a K, it's called a K one, and it's a it's basically a Klont Centaur clone. Right. And uh, and there were I don't think they made very many of, them, but it was um, a friend of mine gave it to me a couple years ago because you know in the in the quest of the Klon Centaur, and I didn't really want to pay eighteen hundred dollars for a, you know, a right. Klon, you know, a, a real Klon, you know, a vintage one or whatever from the nineties. So um, he hit me to this pedal, and there's not very many made, and it's called a K one. So it's basically and we A-beat it with real, with silver Klon centaurs, with gold Klon centaurs. I mean, I've been in rooms with, you know, where we lined up all the pedals and, and this pedal actually beat a lot of them. Wow. So it was, it, yeah, it's really, really cool. If you can find one, sometimes I'll see them on reverb every now and then, but it's made by Mojo Pedals and it's called a, a K1. And it's yeah. just basically a Klon centaur clone. That and, um, you know, for delay, I'm using a, uh, you know, I've worked with Brian Wampler at Wampler for years up in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. and I use his Fa Tape Echo. Yeah, it's a great pedal. Which, I, I love it. I love the yeah. tap tempo on it. I love the, yeah. I love that I get the tape, you know, the, the kind of the warble of like a real Echo Plex. It's, yeah. it's just, I love that, that pedal. Yeah. Yeah, you got the, the, uh, the first, the first one that came out, the original one. Is that what you're talking about? I believe so. It's got it's got two foot switches on it. There's a tap yeah. tempo, and then a yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably it. Yeah, it's just, I got that too. I like that a lot. You know, I've I, had it for many years. Yeah. I mean, I've had it for years. So, and then I've got, uh, and then another company, um, Big Joe Stomp Box Company. Uh, I've got their analog delay that I use. I set for more of like a slap, you know, a fast delay or a slap back. Right, and that's the other beautiful thing about the Helios 100 is I have a I have an effects loop on it, so I'll usually run those two delays through the loop, and um, which you know that's the only thing I'll put through the effects loop, and everything else goes into the front end of the amp. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I actually I have a silver clone. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, they're they're great, great, great pedals. I'm I'm oh, God, I'm yeah. obsessed with that stuff, though. You know, personally. Yeah, I mean, can you have enough? Or yeah, not? I know, and I, you know, not saying I'm the same way. I've got a, you know, it's funny because I've got a, I've got a giant uh, suitcase at um, the producer I'm working with studio that I kind of just stored over there uh, when I moved to Nashville, and I went through it the other day and just found tons of pedals, and uh, I had so much stuff in there, and was kind of going through it, and. Um, and I, you know, yeah, I just, it, I just went through so many phases and there was, I found so many in there that was so like the, like the, um, the exotic effects EP boost, yeah. you know, that was one that I hadn't thought about in a long time or, um, you know, there was just so many that, um, that I worked with, you know, like, uh, Vertex, I was working with Mason Marangella for a while. Uh, we met through Robin Ford actually. And so he had a boost pedal and I did some work with, with Mason and the dynamic distortion. I also have that on the board right now as well. I do have yeah. the Vertex dynamic distortion is on the board. I forgot to mention that. And, uh, I'm glad I thought about that. Yeah. Mason Marangella really, uh, I had, I have a great relationship with Mason. He came down to LA from San Francisco while we were doing supersonic blues machine and, and really just, you know, through the recommendation of Robin Ford and really has helped me out, you know, tremendously with pedals and tone and 
um, all that. So yeah, that dynamic distortion is really cool. But yeah. anyway, so there's just yeah, I mean it's, it's just never ending. I mean you know always chasing tone is a it's it's almost a sickness. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a good it's a good sickness though. Yeah, it is a good sickness. <laughs> it's a good sickness. If you're going to have one. Yes, it is. I know, so, you know, some guys are into cars and some guys are into, you know, sports or whatever it is, you know. It's like, hey, you know, why not? Now, why not 100 guitars? You know, why not 30 <laughs> amplifiers? Exactly. <Right>? Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so what are you what are you doing now? I know things have uh you know, really slowing down, unfortunately, you know, because of this whole virus stuff. And, uh, you know, some guys are working on their next album. Some guys are doing, you know, studio work for others or giving lessons or whatever. You know, what's Lance doing right now? Well, yeah, I mean, that's basically all that anybody can do right now. I mean, I'm, um, you know, I've taken all, I've taken two years, almost two years off from my career to kind of, re, you know, get some wellness back going in my life. My life kind of veered off the fuck, off the road, um, you know, for a, a, a brief period. And so I moved to, Na- uh, moved to Nashville and really kind of just started to recenter myself and focus on my wellness and my well-being and my sobriety and um, began kind of working in the recovery industry uh, for a brief period. And so I've been doing that. Um, also I put together a brand new band here. I got a brand new trio and, uh, we were getting ready to get back on the road. And then, you know, this yeah. COVID-19 kind of, <laughs> yeah, ordered that whole little party. So, but we've, we've started to work with, um, I'm working with Paul Ebersole, uh, and we're, we're recording a new album, uh, here in Nashville at the bakery studios in Berry Hill. Uh, matter of fact, I was over there last night cutting some guitar tracks. And, uh, it's, it's going to be a really cool record. I mean, it's, it's really organic. The sounds are, that we're getting is incredible. And, you know, when I, it, Paul was one of the first people I met when I came to, back to Nashville and, uh, people had been telling me for almost 20, well, over 20 years that Paul and I needed to work together because, you know, Paul did the first Eric Gales records Yeah, and Eric, Eric being one of my best friends for life I mean, childhood friends since we were kids, um, you know, I, you know, I'd always known that we, I needed to work with Paul and, you know, I did, I did two or three albums in Memphis at Ardent. And every time I was at Ardent, everybody would always say, man, you really need to hook up with Paul Ebersold and you need to hook up with Ebersold and, you know, always hearing this. And so when I, when I moved to Nashville, I, he was like one of the first people I ever bumped into. Yeah. So it's just this weird thing that just happened. And so we immediately started working on you know, trying to put something together. So, um, it's taken about a year to get off the ground, but we're, we're now, we're, we're getting, you know, tracks cut, um, and working on, you know, it took a while to kind of dial in the band, but, you know, once I've got a new trio formed here and got some new guys together, um, the band is, uh, it's, it's really, really working, uh, you know, and it's really happening. So, um, uh, anyhow, um, so it's, um, um, you know, it's, it's, everything has been really, really working, um, good as far as the recording is concerned. And yeah, and I, it's funny, right before you called, I was just talking about setting up some online lessons. You know, I talked to Jeff's sheets probably a week or two before this happened down in with True Fire. Okay. And, uh, and so I was to shoot videos for True Fire almost two years ago 
and go to Florida, go to Tampa and shoot a, a true fire series. And uh, so Jeff and I had just reconnected and I was getting ready to head down to Tampa to shoot some, to film some videos for Jeff and true fire and do a, do a, you know, blues rock series with, with true fire. And uh, then all of a sudden, you know, again, yeah. <laughs> coronavirus yeah. shut it all down. So, uh, but I was already going back into that mode. So, um, just trying to get through the last couple of months with all this craziness. Um, I'm now getting ready to set up, uh, you know, with zoom taking off like it has and things happening and people staying in and, and that kind of, that sort of thing happening. Um, we're kind of preparing to relaunch, um, you know, my guitar instruction business and, and getting back into that and, um, you know, doing some, doing some at home work and, and, um, you know, sharing the, sharing the licks and the, and the stuff that I've just, been fortunate enough to garner and get from all the great guitar players that I've worked with my entire career and, uh, and share that. And just much like your show to inspire and, and, uh, influence, you know, um, either young players that are, that are starting out or guys that just want to, you know, expand their repertoire. Yeah. I I've noticed that, you know, since I've been going back in and doing this and interviewing people like yourself, you know, I, I'm, I'm a guy that's motivated to play anyway, but it has just, you know, it sparked a fire in me, you know, personally to want to be able to, you know, to, to learn new things and to take on, you know, look at things from a different perspective and stuff. I think it's really important to be a well-rounded player. You know what I mean? I was always a, I was always a one-trick pony, you know, for a long time. You know what I mean? And, uh-huh. you know, and then discovering that there's there's so many different ways to approach this thing and there's so many doors that can open if you you know we're more well-rounded you know what i mean absolutely yeah so absolutely well lance i really appreciate you know the time that you've given me today and uh boy i sure hope that you know this virus thing goes away and you know, you and everybody else like you can get back to work, you know, the way that you need to and stuff. And yeah. And of course, when you come to Chicago, I'm going to hit you up. <laughs> and I I'm, definitely, and I, likewise, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely, um, I'm going to hit you up. I'm, I'm going to have to come see the guitar. I'm going to have to come hear the rig and uh, probably going to have to get a lesson too. Oh, absolutely. All those things <laughs> definitely work out. I, I long for the days I can walk right back in the door at Buddy Guy's Club. It's going to be a tremendous occasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jimmy, thank you so much for the interview. I really appreciate it. And seriously, yeah, I mean, once this is all over and we're back in Chicago, let's 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 get together and hit up Lou Malmati's or something. That sounds great. All right, well, there you go. Lance Lopez on Guitar Talk. You know what? Make sure that you're... Uh, friending him on uh, social media, following him on social media so that you know where uh, Lance is going to be playing at. Make sure you follow him on all the music streaming sites so that you're connected to his music and it's a part of your life because you're going to really enjoy it. And uh, until next time, thanks for tuning in to Guitar Talk. I'm Jimmy Warren. You guys have a rocking day. <laughs>